So I think I have a, a much higher standard than just trying to be the world champion or just trying to be the best relief pitcher ever. I, I, I'm required to dig way deeper than that because I've seen plenty of people who were the best, but all other areas of their life were in shambles. And, um, and I want to be that person that succeeds in way more than just what the stats read. I want to be more well-rounded. And I think by doing that, I'm going to be the best in multiple areas and not just one area. Are you looking for a high-energy, competitive way to get your team to compete while training athleticism, hand-eye coordination, and lateral quickness? If so, you got to check out Spikeball. Top high school, college, and professional athletes around the world are using Spikeball as a fun and safe competition to start their training sessions, practices, and workouts. It's also a tremendous way to train your routines and releases and build that elite mindset. As a listener to the Peak Performance Podcast, Podcast, you can get a free spike ball set by visiting briancane.com slash spike ball. Again, that's briancane.com slash spike ball because if you're not playing spike ball, you're just playing games. If your body could talk, what would it tell you? Know your body, transform your life. That's the motto of DexaFit, the best in helping you know your numbers. DexaFit shows you exactly how your body composition, cardiovascular fitness, and metabolic health compares to the optimal standard. We know that measurement equals motivation, and DexaFit measures your progress while providing the diet and fitness plan customized for your body. DexaFit is providing a tremendous opportunity for listeners of the Peak Performance Podcast to get their first scan at a discounted rate. Go to briancane.com slash DexaFit. That's briancane.com slash D-E-X-A-F-I-T right now to learn more. Hey, how you doing? This is Brian Kane, your Peak Performance Coach with the Peak Performance Podcast. And today, our guest is a 1995 Major League Baseball World Series champion and a pitcher with a career 3.25 ERA. His name, Greg McMichael. Greg went to the Webb School in Knoxville and then went on to the University of Tennessee and had a great career before being drafted by the Cleveland Indians and spending the better part of eight seasons in Major League Baseball. Greg, thank you for taking the time out of your hectic schedule here to sit down with us and be on the podcast. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me, Brian. If you would, Greg, can you kind of catch our, our, our you know, audience, which is going to be mostly you know, coaches and athletes, kind of give them a, a snapshot of your journey from the, going to the web school and kind of how you got into baseball all the way up to where you are now in your, in your position with the Atlanta Braves. Sure, I'd be glad to. So um, my journey kind of starts back uh, when I was about 13, and I was diagnosed with a rare cartilage disease called osteochondritis desiccans. And at the time, uh, I think it was pretty rare. There were only like two cases in Tennessee. Uh, but I've, I've recently had students in the last 10 years that, um, that have had it, and it's not as common. I mean, it's, it, it's more common today because kids are growing – uh, more, you know, faster. And, and so it basically what had happened, I grew like six inches in one year and the cartilage in my knees had died. And so they had to go in and start taking it out. They tried to repair it, which kind of like the micro fracture nowadays, 
there's they went in they drilled holes back then it didn't work so i had three surgeries before i got out of high school and at a very young age they told me i'd never play sports again and and coming from a a kid who played basketball football baseball swam i ran track i played tennis i did everything that you could possibly do to all of a sudden doctors saying you know you can't do anything anymore so for two years i was in a pretty dark place um i started hanging out with seniors uh started doing drugs and drinking and stuff. And it just was not a, a good scene at all because I, you know, baseball was my life or sports were my life in competition. And that was taken away. I really didn't know what to do. Um, but I got to a point where, um, as a sophomore in high school, I just said, you know what, I'm, I'm go- I got to go do something. And I tried to pitch and the doctors just said, well, you know, you can try, but it's going to hurt and you know, it's going to be hard to run, do all that kind of stuff. So I figured, Pitching was the one thing where you didn't have to run a lot, didn't have to do much. I could I could try. So I pitched. I did pretty well my, my sophomore year. And then uh, my next year, I got a little stronger. I pitched and played first base. I played quarterback on the football team. And then by my senior year, um, I'd received a full ride to Tennessee. Uh, we won the state championship in baseball. And I went on to the University of Tennessee and, and, and pitched for three years didn't do really well my first couple of years just because adjusting from a small school like Webb that you talked about to SEC baseball was a big was a big jump. So it took me a couple of years to adjust, but I got better and better. And by my my junior year, uh, the Indians drafted me in the third round. I was the number one pitcher at Tennessee. I did pretty well in the SEC. Went on, and then that's really when my career really started taking off because I think. At that time, all the adversity I had gone through, um, I realized that I was a I was a quick learner. I realized that one of my gifts were was being coachable and then adapting by th- with things around me, seeing what others were doing, implementing it into into uh, my skill set. So I was able to learn and and succeed pretty quickly. So I I went through the Indians organization very quickly. And by the very first year we played, we won the uh, the Carolina League Championship. I was the starting pitcher on the team, won the championship. And then the next year, we set the record for for wins in Double A. We won another championship. And then I was I was real close to the big leagues when I got hurt again. And the Indians knew my history of knee problems, and I had surgery. And they said, you know what, you're going to have to retire. You need to you need to shut it down. We don't think you're going to make it. So they released me after just cruising through their organization. So I went back to the scout who had signed me and they, uh, he was now with the Braves. His name is Roy Clark. And I went to, him, I said, Hey, you know, they just released me. He's like, why, why'd they release you? And I said, well, I had surgery. They didn't think I was going to make it back. So I went to a little tryout with him and he looked at me and says, you know what? I, I, I still see what I like about you. And I think you're still in a good position. So he got me signed by the Braves. I had to start back over an A ball then I uh, went through their organization pretty quickly and I actually made the team out of spring training in 93. So I signed with them in 91, made the team in 93. And by the all-star break, I was the closer for the Braves. And they had been in the World Series the last two years. And then two years later, we won the World Series. What's interesting about that story is not only is it a God story of what um, he did in my life and bringing me from those very dark, dark times, but... The guy who released me with the Indians and told me that um, I should hang it up came over and shook my hand in 95. He was the first person I saw when he walked in the clubhouse after we beat the Indians 
in the World Series. He shook my hand and said, congratulations. So uh, pretty, pretty, uh, I, I wish I could take credit for the whole thing. But, um, but uh, you know, I worked hard. I stayed at it. I didn't give up, even though there were plenty of times I wanted to. You know, one of the things that we we hear a lot of our guests on the podcast talk about, Greg, is is at some point in their life, they had to kind of draw a line in the sand and make a decision that they weren't going to become a victim of adversity, but they were going to become a victor and make adversity their advantage. And that sounds like you had to do that in high school with the injury. You had to do it again with kind of a lifestyle change from hanging out with the, the wrong crowd to the right crowd in high school. And then again, when you had surgery in 93 and the Indians released you, how do you, is that something that you learned or is it something that was just an, a part of your DNA? I mean, how do you learn to make adversity your advantage as an athlete? I, I think you know that it's a part of the game. Um, that if you, I think that's what's so great about athletics is when you, um, when you decide to be an athlete and play, it just comes with the territory and you got to learn to do deal with it or you quit, you give up. And I tell my, I've been teaching for the last 15 years and I tell my students all the time, like you, you called it uh, drawing a line in the sand, but there will come a time where you've got to decide, am I going to keep moving forward or am I just going to quit and run away? And uh, it happens at some point in time, I call them gut checks, that uh, some kids today, especially in the Atlanta area where I am, the competition's so fierce, it comes at seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, where that coach says, you know what, you're not good enough. You, you can't, you know, we've got too many guys here. And I see it all the time. I said, that's going to be the point in time where you decide if you really want to be a ball player. Do you really want to pitch or are you just doing it because you have nothing else to do? Or are you doing it because you're passionate about it? And uh, I'll tell you just one quick story. I had a student years ago that uh, was cut his freshman year, and he came to me and says, you know, I really want to pitch in high school, but I just got I just got cut. So we worked the whole year. His sophomore year, he got cut again. He worked the whole year, and he went to his junior year tryouts, and he got cut again. And I looked at him. I said, I love you. I said, but maybe it's time to either go to a different school I said, or find something else you're passionate about. And he goes, no, I'm going to pitch in my high school. I'm going to pitch from my high school. I said, well, that coach doesn't like you. He doesn't like something or you're not good enough or he's got too many good athletes. And he goes, I don't care. I want to work it. So we worked another year and he made it as the 11th pitcher on his staff. He goes on to get a full ride college, goes on to play independent ball. So great story. And, you know, and he there was a gut check for him. And he just said, no, I'm passionate about this. And he kept moving forward. And, you know, we all face those, whether it's life, whether it's college, whether it's career, whether it's sports, you know. So it's just a great story for me. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. There's always uh, – but what gave me the strength to do that, I think it was my relationship with the Lord because I wanted to quit. But I um, also knew that this is something that I was good at and that I was passionate about it. So I think those factors all played into that if I quit, I had nowhere else to go that I had to keep moving forward. If we can, let's, let's kind of jump forward a little bit to the, the 1995 season, World Series. Uh, you're a World Series champion. What, what's the, the – a, you were a closer on that team, is that right? I was a setup guy by that time. I okay. closed earlier in my career, but I was a setup guy. Was Rocker the closer on that team? Uh, Mark Wollers. Wollers, okay, fantastic. So um, – 
talk a little bit about kind of the the mental game of baseball for you as a pitcher. You know, whether it was coming in to close a game or coming in as a setup guy. I'm sure your career at some point you were a starter. What what's kind of the mental game of baseball to you? Uh, you know, as a guy who's played and had success at all levels, a World Series ring. What's the mental game of baseball, Greg? Pitching is an interesting um, a job because you have to have, as my wife would say, water off a duck's back. You have to be able to have the ability to get uh, beat one night and come back and believe that you're going to succeed the next night. And so it's really a series of tiny battles throughout the whole season. The season is a marathon, but yet pitching as a reliever is a sprint. So, um, which is an interesting dynamic because, you know, those are two different mental, mental games, you know, running a marathon versus a sprinter. They're two different situations, but, uh, as a reliever, you have to have short-term memory loss. You have to keep having confidence, uh, even though maybe the fans don't have confidence in you or the coach doesn't have confidence in you, or sometimes you don't have confidence in yourself, but you've got to find a way to keep going out there every night. Um, the season starts around February because you're going to spring training and you have a month to prepare six weeks to prepare. Then between April and September, you're competing night in night out, even though you might not be in a game. Uh, I think the most I was in 81 games, which is almost ha- is half the games you're warming up in another third of the games. So you're preparing to go in. So there's a, there's a physical, physical grind. But there's a mental grind because you know at any second that phone rings, you get up, you prepare, you go in, and you've got to compete at a very high level at the very first pitch. As a starter, you have time to prepare five days in advance. You go out, you warm up very slowly, you prepare for a marathon type of game. As a reliever, you have to throw your very first pitch, the first pitch, because if you come in with bases loaded, nobody out or man on first two outs the games you got a one run lead it's the eighth inning you can't you can't relax your first pitch has to be as good as your last as a starter you can make a few mistakes early on and recover because it's for seven innings but as a reliever if you make one bad pitch you're out of the game or the game's over so so that that kind of edge that you're living on is very intense and it's uh and and you have to be perfect right away so doing that night in and night out, you're going to fail. It's just the, the, the numbers are, are work out that way. But you're also going to have a lot of successes. The, the key is how do you stay even keel? How do you, how do you balance yourself out um, night in and night out and not get too high, not get too low? So that is kind of a, that is kind of a mental marathon, whereas physically you have to be ready to sprint every night. So what what are some things that you did to keep you on that even keel and be be consistent from a routine standpoint or what were some of the kind of like your daily routines and things that you use to be consistent? Right. So I think from a personal level, um, I had, you know, my my uh, relationship with the Lord, kind of a spiritual, uh, spiritual component in my life that kept me even keeled. And then from a family perspective, um, I had to. Um, be grounded. My wife was good at helping me stay grounded. She wasn't all into baseball. She didn't talk about baseball. So I had a I had a family life that was that was very balanced, which was good. And then um, from a a athletic standpoint, coming to the field 
there were there was a routine that I had to get into, and I, I teach this to my students: is that you gotta you gotta have a routine. You know, the, the world looks at baseball players, and they're called superstitious. You know, you put your socks on the same way, but I, I call that as a pattern. And what I've seen is that when I have a pattern that I'm comfortable with, that I can repeat day in and day out, then it allows me to repeat as an athlete. And so um, I warm up the same way. I dress the same way. I eat similar. I, um, I have routines throughout the day that I call patterns that I try to repeat. So it's playing catch with the same person. It's working uh, and, and of course, this this kind of evolves over the course of your career because you find things that work and things that don't work. But it could be as simple as how I step up on the mound, uh, how many warm up pitches I have. Do I throw sinkers first? Do I throw sliders first? Do I throw changeups first? What am I thinking about? How do I pray? You know, there's just there's that whole pattern that you try to develop as an athlete, and I think that's the biggest thing that allows you to compete because remember it, you know pitching is about doing 100 times the right way and thinking the right way physically doing the right way now you know ultimately that's impossible to do because we're human and we're flawed but when you have the mentality that you're going to repeat the right pitch the perfect pitch the right way every time whether it's in practice or warm-ups or the game then you've created a pattern that you can have the best success on on uh, on going out there and doing your job. I love that concept of you know the patterns and repeating and getting into a routine from you know the way that you eat and how you dress and your warm up and who you're playing catch with. I'd imagine that even now today, working in alumni relations with the Braves after your baseball career is over, that you probably still have routines in the sense of kind of how you attack your day. Is that accurate? That is. Um, <laughs> it's probably um, it's funny because. I, you know, dealing with a lot of guys that have retired and, and passed from from playing to to now just being a dad, uh, working in a second career. I'm on my third career now. I tell them now all the time. I said, you're going to have multiple careers. The key is, um, you know, finding a new pattern, like you said, find, you know, and, and, and it's very I was depressed for the whole year after I quit because I thought. There's no way I can go from doing what I'm doing to now carpool and and dad every day, uh, you know, dinner at home. I mean, the, the pattern looks a lot less exciting than what I was doing before. And I thought, I, I just don't think I can do it. I don't think I can I can create a new pattern. But uh, but you do. And you find there again, you got to find what works and you've got to adjust um you know, into a new, a new, uh, career. And so I'm, I'm doing something that I love and I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back. It's just a new phase in my life, but you're, you're absolutely right. You have to find a way you're trying to be successful at what you're doing now. So you've got to do the same thing. And, um, I tell you what, it's harder the older I get. Um, sometimes I'm less motivated. I'm, 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 I'm a little flabby around the, middle, you know, the midsection and my kids were like going, dad, really, were you an athlete? You know, <laughs> but, but, uh, it's fun. But yeah, I think it's, it's probably more important now because it doesn't come as natural as it did. You know, you played baseball from seven years old all the way up till I was 34 and in the big leagues. And that was something you repeated every year and it just got, you know, better and better and better because you repeat it so much. And then all of a sudden you change careers at 35 
and now you don't have all that. Um, I don't know if it's called an aggregate or you don't have that kind of building upon year after year like you did. You know, you go with, you know, I see guys going and I did this, you go into the business world. You don't have that knowledge and that that uh, experience that's built up for, th- you know, 30 years. You're starting fresh into a business. And boy, that's a that's a recipe for disaster for a lot of guys because you think, oh, well, I was I was a successful at this. So I can walk into this arena and I can be just as successful. And man, you can get blindsided so easily because you don't have that cumulative knowledge that you did before. And it's just uh, it's just a real it's a scary thing, but it's uh, you just got to keep your eyes wide open on that. You know, talk, let's talk a little bit about that kind of you know retirement and career transition that I'm sure you see a, and, and help a lot of players through because you know as an athlete or as a college coach, you know you 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 play and all of a sudden somebody says and, you know, very few people retire, right? Most people either get injured and they're done, or they get cut and they're done. And then you know a lot of my friends that have done that are guys I've worked with in college that go on to play in pro. Then they kind of they kind of go in like you said to those dark years, you know, or college coaches that this is what they've always done. They're a head coach, they get fired, and now they have a really hard time getting another college coaching job, you know. And and I think there's that that retirement slash career transition. What's some of the the things that you see with the people that you work with, Greg, the former players that they struggle with, like all of them in that career retirement or transition? And then what advice do you often give them consistently? Yeah, with with these guys, I see a lack of confidence. If you think about how baseball works, you're told what to wear, when to be on the field, when to eat, when to pitch, when to hit. So you are truly, you're almost a company guy, a government worker. I mean, there's there's no really thinking outside the box. There may be some small things on how you train in the off season, but for the most part, you're you're pretty much dic- everything's dictated to you what you're going to do. So now, when you leave that, and you're asked to come up with a different career, it's it's really um, it's hard for these guys to think outside the box. So one of the things that I've offered in the past is said, okay, we need to get you tested. We need to find out where your skills lie outside of being a pitcher or a hitter. We need to get you a coach and we need to help somebody help you transition to another career. Because literally I see a lot of guys frozen, not, not knowing what to do, excuse me, what to do, how to do it. And then not, not, uh, and lack the confidence to step out and do it. So that's where I've tried to step in and say, you know what? Um, I think you, I think you had you have I know you have a skill set. I know you have other passions. We need to find out what those are and you need some help to do it. And there's professionals out there that can do that. So I've encouraged them uh, from that perspective. You see a lot of guys go right back into the game because that's what they know. So it's easy to transition from player to coach, player to scout. Outside of that, it's a little scarier. And I haven't seen as many people. trans. I think the players from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago did a great job of transitioning because in the off season they had to work. They couldn't just train. My generation of players made enough money where they could just train in the off season, but then it hurt them on the, on the backside because when it was time to retire, they had no skills. They had no skill set. 
So I think uh, you look at the guys back from the 70s and the 80s, man, when they retired, they just went right into working with AT&T. They did, they had internships, they did all this kind of stuff. So they, they seem to be a lot healthier in their second career than my generation of players who all became instructors. And it's not that, you know, I, I love teaching. I, that's part of my passion. But I do it because um, because I want to, not because I have to. A lot of these guys trans- transition into teaching and coaching and scouting because they don't ha- they don't have any other choices, and um, and so therefore they don't do it as well because they're not as passionate about it. So the one thing I do do try to encourage them to do, and if they need help, and I know the Players Association has talked about this a little bit. But being on the ground here with the alumni, with the Braves, I think I have a lot better feel than somebody is sitting up in New York trying to talk about what's going on around the country. I know in Atlanta, the 62 guys that I deal with here, and then there's 250 nationwide that I kind of communicate with. But at least the 62 guys here in Atlanta, I got a really good feel for what they need and how to transition them. But uh, but it, it is a scary thing. But I think the biggest thing is you got to start with getting yourself tested, find out where your skills lie, and then you've got to get a, uh, a coach, and then have somebody help you um, find an internship into that arena. There there was a lot that happened in high school and college that uh, that was very positive, and um, obviously you know there's always personal choices, life choices. But I think what what kind of transcends all those all those areas, uh, all those uh, time frames in my life um, is probably just a couple factors. And I think one. I would tell that I would tell myself at 18, 22, 30, that every decision that you make today is going to have an eternal uh, uh, an eternal impact and it's going to have a daily impact it's going to have a weekly impact it's going to have a monthly impact so so the decisions that you're making today are going to affect you from now into eternity so i think that i think so take every thought captive take um your work seriously and think about that you're not only building and looking for success today but you're looking for long-term success so Sometimes it's easy to to believe the lie that you that you're living in a bubble, that your decision right now only impacts you right now. And um, so I think that's that's that should be a way of life for you, no matter what age or stage of life you're in, because like we talked about as an athlete, number one, we have an accumulative effect. So the things you work on today are going to be the skills developed tomorrow and next week and next month. But also the work ethic that you're building, the personal choices that you're making with your girlfriend, with your fiance, with your wife, the personal choices that you're making when you're out with your friends, uh, the the time that you have to work on your skills as a pitcher in practice when nobody's looking, when you're just sitting around the outfield and you're you're just kind of your mind's wandering. Or you're playing catch with your buddy before practice. Use those times to create good, positive, um, 
decisions that they're that going to make you a better pitcher, make you a better employer, employee, make you a better husband, make you a better friend, all those decisions that you're making. So I think there's probably not one thing I'd look back and say, you know what, this is a mistake. You know, we're all going to make mistakes. You can live your life full of regret. Or you can say, you know what, I'm human, I'm flawed, I'm going to make mistakes. But the one thing I want to do is I'm going to change my behavior now, change my thought process now. I'm going to make good decisions now so that they accumulate and I'm going to be better next week, next year, 10 years, 20 years. So that, that would probably be the biggest um, advice I would tell myself at 18, uh, 25, 35 even today, because you know what, I'm, I'm turning 50 next month. It doesn't change. I mean, I'm still, I still have to talk myself the same way. I still have to say, you know what decisions I'm making now with my kids, with my wife, with my job, they're going to impact me when I'm 60. They're going to impact me when I'm 55. They're going to impact me when I'm 70. So, um, I just don't think you ever get away from that. And I think it's just a good, a good word. Uh, we always want a better work ethic. Uh, there's things that I'm, I'm branching out into now that, uh, that I want to see come true in a year, two years. And so I have to stay focused on that. And, and, uh, I don't think that changes from 18 to 49. Number one thing I've learned in my personal life over the last probably 25 years is that do I look at my wife? And is she happy? Is she content? Do we have a good relationship? So number one, do I see um, do I see a harshness in her life, or do I see joy, and do I see um, a, a special relationship? And I can honestly say that that hasn't always been the case, but I can say today that we have as good or better relationship than we ever have. So to me. That's the number one way that I, I judge success because that that is just a foundational issue in my life that I could be the best alumni director in the world. I could have all the World Series champion rings. But if I walk home and there's somebody there that hates my guts or somebody there that just that is just a miserable relationship, I, I, I've seen those. And that just has to be the worst thing ever. So I'm very thankful for that. So that's the first way that I measure success. Uh, outside of that, I, I look to see, am I working hard? Um, do I, um, do I leave it all on the table? I know that stats, we, you know, I was in a career that measured me by stats and that is, that's a, that's a very difficult thing because one, one question we always used to ask each other is that if, if you're only meant to be a 150 hitter, if you're only good enough to be a 150 hitter in the big leagues, are you going to be satisfied with that? Or are you going to be okay with that? Because ultimately there can only be one champion. There's very few guys that bat over 300 for a, a career. There's, there can only be one Cy Young award winner. So if that's the thing you're always chasing to be the best, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. And I know that that's not always a popular view that you could say, oh, you got to strive to be the best. You've got to be this. To me, that doesn't that doesn't evoke in my life me being the best. I, I don't always get the best out of myself when I set myself up to be the number one person. 
But what does bring out the best in me is when I say, you know what, did I leave it all on the table mentally, physically, spiritually, relationally? Did I, did I work as hard as I could in all those areas or hard as I can in all those areas? And did I leave it all on the table? And did I strive to find ways to leave it on the table better? You know, so, so to me that, that always brought out the best in me. And so that's, that's how I measure success in my own life. Am I doing everything that I know possible to be the best I can be? Cause ultimately I don't have to answer to my stats. I have to answer to, to, um, my Lord and savior. And so he requires me to be the best because, um, because he created me for so much more. So, so I think I have a, a much higher standard than just trying to be the world champion or just trying to be the best relief pitcher ever. I, I, I'm required to dig way deeper than that because I've seen plenty of people who were the best, but all other areas of their life were in shambles. And, um, and I want to be that person that succeeds in way more than just what the stats read. I want to be more well-rounded. And I think by doing that, I'm going to be the best in multiple areas and not just one area. You've probably heard me say, do a little a lot, not a lot a little. A great way to do that is by following me on Twitter, liking my Facebook page, or adding Brian Kane Peak on Snapchat, where I'm posting daily mental game reminders for you. Thanks for listening to the Peak Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a positive review or share a link to this episode on social media using hashtag PeakPod. Mention Brian Kane and one thing you learned in this episode for your chance to win a free ticket to the next Brian Kane Experience live event. Dominate the day.